I invite you to hear this story from 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to take her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you've just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the king all the news about the fighting, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubal? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? 
Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead too. So the messenger went, and he came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Good morning, Highland. Well, we have a difficult text this morning, and the first thing I need to do is tell you about the code of being a gospel preacher. This is what I teach students who come to the GST at Abilene Christian University. This is what I have tried to practice faithfully for almost 40 years as a preacher. And that is, the work of a preacher is to take the gospel in one hand and take the text that's been given to you in the other and see where they intersect. And I have to confess to you today, this is not going to be an easy job. We're right in the middle of the story of uh, David. And we've come to this place where David could do no wrong to the place where David does all kinds of wrong. And in fact, we're at the very hinge point of the David narrative where he goes from being the golden boy to being the one who sings only broken hallelujahs. We're at that place in the narrative. So if you thought that David was a heroic warrior, an ancient day Bono with his ballads and psalms and his pre-electric guitar, also known as the harp, that he was a wise and clever politician and that he was a fierce God lover, then you would be mostly right. But today we find David the sinner in front of us. And the thing that is, a, that is so hideous about his sin, bound up in his kingly power, is the odious consequences that sin has. If we were to read the stories of David chronologically, from the boy pulled out of the fields to be named king, to the old man and his dying days, here we are at the very hinge point of the story. And David's life will no longer be charmed. He finds from this point on no real, untroubled rest. He will live out every day of the rest of his life with the sigh of a deep burden of his own assertion of his own will and how it makes that will, twists his own life and twists the life of his family and of the people Israel. Yeah, not a fun text. And so what I want to try to do today is see if we can find any gospel in this story. 
Is there any place where we can find some place to stand and align this story with all that we have declared as the people of God this morning with Jeff and the, the team who's led us in worship? Is there a place for that to happen? So we began by looking at this text from 2 Samuel chapter 11. We've heard it read in our hearing, and now let's take a little deeper look at all of this. Let's look at David, the golden boy, who really is not all that interesting of a character in this story. We've come now to this time, uh, we come to this place in this text, and we come, I come, in a time, as I think many of you do too, of a heightened awareness of things like the Me Too movement of stories about Jeffrey Epstein this past week, of stories about men in power taking advantage of others. It's hard not to see that in this text. David, David the warrior king who decides to skip out this particular spring on doing what kings are supposed to do, whip up on your enemies. That's what kings are supposed to do. But instead of going out to war, he stays home. And what happens is he gets bored. And in his boredom, he turns to lust. And in that lust, then all kinds of things begin to break loose. And it's not just lust. It's the way in which David's lust, as he wanders around on his rooftop porch and sees a woman who is doing her religious duty, taking a bath after her time of her period, as commanded by the law, that he marries his lust with his absolute power as king. He sends word, who is this woman? And he finds out who this woman is. He knows who this woman is. He knows who this woman is. She's the daughter of Eliam, who was one of David's mighty men. This woman's father had fought with David through all the years, the first 20 years of his uh, uh, rise to power. And she's married to Uriah the Hittite, one of his officers who's out in the field fighting. But that matters not to a man who's decided that he's going to act on his lust and is able to exercise power to make it happen. And he does it. He reaches out. He takes this woman and lies with her. And so here we have old David, our handsome, clever David, our blessed David, this David who has relied on God to give him everything in his life, who's able to deliver me from the lion and the bear, he would say at Goliath. This David who has given everything does, does what kings always do. If we go back into the story of the people of Israel, back into 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people of Israel are looking for a king, we want a king, Samuel. Prophet Samuel, give us a king. And Samuel says, you don't want a king. Oh, yes, we do. We want a king. Samuel says, here's what a king will do. A king will come and take your sons. A king will come and take your daughters. A king will come and take your livestock and your grain. A king will do nothing but take. Oh no, we want a king. And you know what? Up until this point in time, David has been the ideal kind of king. 
He's done what good kings do. He defends the borders. He creates a righteous space for people to live and to flourish. But now, in this story, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which we've heard this morning, we hear that same verb, he takes. He takes just because he can. He takes this woman and he lies with her. This sexual coercive act on David's part uh, is hideous. And he does it with great abandon. He does what kings do. And the story itself lends itself to this harsh sort of reading. He doesn't say her name. He doesn't say anything. No one says nothing. He simply acts. He simply takes, he lays, and she conceives. This coercive act of power is written all over this text. Calculation, lust, no real passion, no real love, just raw, unadulterated power exercising itself. And I've got to say this to you, church. This is old news. This is the way the world is. And we see it being acted out in David's time and in David's ways, we see it today. From Harvey Weinstein to Jeffrey Epstein, from Bill Cosby to R. Kelly the rapper, from, from the Catholic clergy crisis and the abuse that's taking place there to us good old Protestants with Bill Hybels in Chicago. From this Texas State House to our own White House, people in power will do what they want with others. And it's awful. And it's sordid. And people of faith and integrity shall not and ought not stand silent against it. But I also have to say today there is no gospel in all of this. No gospel. There's no good news here. Just an example one of many, countless times where we have seen the raw embrace of power to coerce and subjugate someone to someone else's will. No gospel here. I have to move on. David's not really all that very interesting in this story. But there's Bathsheba. What about her? What about Bathsheba? Is there something there? She is coerced. There's no consensual act here in this story when an absolute monarch demands from this woman whose very self and livelihood of her entire family is under his control, there is no way for this to be a consensual relationship. Uh, we know that today, do we not? I've got a son who's an officer in the U.S. Army. And he is under strict orders not to lay hand or get near anyone who is under his command or authority. It's the way we work. It's the way we understand things. But not for David and not for Bathsheba. There is no seduction on her part. This sexual assault is on David and David alone. She simply lives out the bitter hand that she was dealt. And by that, I find something worth at least noting. She is no shrinking violet, this Bathsheba. Uh, although she is a victim in this story, she's ruthlessly taken by the king. She's widowed through uh, his, his, his uh, decision to murder Uriah. But she is also an active agent. She demonstrates courage and a will to act. 
that you know Bathsheba is an interesting figure in, in this regard. Biblical scholar Wilda Gaffney will uh, imagines uh, an inner dialogue for Bathsheba, and I quote Gaffney here. She says, "I don't know how Bathsheba did it." But it seems to me that she made up her mind to have the best life she could under the circumstances. I imagine that she said to David, you are not going to shut me away like you did your first wife, Michael. You stole the life I had with my husband. You stole our future. You stole our children. I can't get that back, but I will have your children and the security that comes with them. It's good to be king, and I will be the mother of kings. Oh, Bathsheba's got something going here. She becomes the mother of kings. By her first child with David perishes, her second child, Solomon, does become king. And she and the prophet Nathan make sure of that a few chapters later. No, David or Bathsheba is an interesting story. There's something to be seen in in, uh, Bathsheba to see how she works with something that is absolutely bitter and horrific. And she makes something of it. But I have to say, church, there is no gospel here either. So I keep looking. I'm looking for other characters in this story. Where is their gospel? What about Uriah? Ah, Uriah. The mighty man of war who comes back on David's orders to hear a report, who wants to hear a report from the field, and Uriah gives it. And uh, David goes through the usual sorts of uh, motions and uh, asking a few questions. And then uh, then he says, why don't you just uh, spend the night at home? Why don't you go and wash your feet? Which is just a euphemism for saying, why don't you go home and have a nice evening with your wife? Be intimate. Have a night off from being a soldier and just be a man alone with your wife. Oh, it's very clever and very subtle, but Uriah will have none of it. Uriah has more character in his little finger than David shows throughout this whole story. Uriah says, are you kidding me? Go home, sleep with my wife? No, not while the ark of the covenant of God stands out in an open pasture will I do such a thing. Not while my brothers in arms, the band of brothers, stand at guard against the Ammonites will I take the leisure to go home and have a bath and spend the night with my wife. No, this here is the foil to the cowardice and the boredom of David. Uriah is modeling for us what kingly attitudes and character are supposed to look like. Ah, Uriah is a mighty man. His name means light, God of light. And he demonstrates that by his character and his honor in this story. Even as David repeatedly seeks to get him home to cover up the awful deed that has happened that David has caused to happen with Bathsheba. Ah, there's Uriah, an honorable man. And I'd love to camp and talk about honorable men, just like I'd like to talk about a woman who's able to find a way to make something of her life, or just like I'd like to rail on and on about the abuse of power. But church, I've got to say, there's no gospel here either. Where is their gospel in this story? Well, we have to go actually a little farther than where Leslie read today. 
have to keep digging a little longer, a little longer. We ought to move on into chapter 12. The story ends with the reading this morning that, uh, that David is displeasing to the Lord. And it's there that something begins to happen that begins to turn the story that does catch my attention. It catches my gospel preacher eye. It's in verse 12, and I'll read it for you because we didn't hear it a little while ago. You know, but this thing that David did, which was evil in the lies of the Lord, but now, chapter 12, verse 1, we read, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, it's interesting. I didn't count how many, but probably about a dozen or 15 times in chapter 11, the narrator says that David sent this, and he sent that, and he sent Uriah, and he sent Joab, and he sent, he sent, he sent for Bathsheba. David is the one who seems to be in control of everything, but not in chapter 12. There's a new subject on the scene. It's God. And God is going to do a little sending himself. God is active in this story. God acts. He sends Nathan to David. And David goes, excuse me, and Nathan goes, and he has a story to tell. And this story, oh, now here's a story. I think about the courage that it must have taken for Nathan to get up and go do what he did. He simply goes, and he does what he does. He tells a story. He tells a story about a poor man who has nothing but one pet lamb who lies up against his chest and is beloved by this poor man. It's the only possession of any value that he has is this pet lamb. But there's another man in the story. In chapter 12, the other man is the story, is, is the man who is rich and powerful and has many flocks and herds. He's got all kinds of wealth and resources. He has power. And the rich man receives a visitor one day, and the visitor needs to be fed. But rather than take from his abundance of all that he possesses, the rich man slips over and steals the poor man's single little lamb and cooks it and feeds it to his guests. And, and Nathan here, in telling this story, with a classic work of an indirect uh, kind of rhetoric of telling the story, catches David off beat. It arouses in David his kingly justice. It arouses in David the things that we admire about David. A man of action, of determination, of clarity, of focus on what the Torah has to say and the way of God and the way in which we behave and relate to one another. It incites all of his feelings of justice and injustice. And he says, wrong, foul, time out, technical foul. This must be, a, uh, this must be attended to. This deserves death. It deserves reparations fourfold. And in this moment, in this moment, church, I think we're about to find ourselves with a little gospel, a little moment of something happening that we can affirm and work with as people who believe in a God of forgiveness. 
It's in this moment that David then hears the words from Nathan, you are the man. And I want to say to you this morning, church, there's gospel. That's gospel. Now, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute. He just got accused of being a big, fat sinner. And he is. He's an odious one. I've been living with this text so long, I'm still mad at David. You might could tell I'm feeling a little mad at David today. Maybe it's because I've read too much about the Me Too movement. Maybe it's because I have three daughters. I don't know what it is, but I'm still pretty mad at David. And this story, church, gets to me more than the story of the prodigal son. About the depth and commitment of God to a man who is given such great power and abuses it so totally, and yet God seems content to try to work with him a little bit longer. And that's what he's done with sending Nathan, the prophet, to David. And Nathan says to David, you are the man, and in that moment we get a chance to see whether or not gospel will take root again in David's heart. Will it? Because there's no assurance for Nathan that David won't say, off with your head, buddy. This secrecy will continue to be the way it is. David could have easily done that. David was no stranger to taking people out, directly or indirectly, often indirectly, but there was nothing that would keep David from doing that very thing to Nathan. Save. Save the gospel. I, Save somewhere down deep in David a reburning, a rekindling of that which called him in the beginning to follow the God who had chosen him and who had loved him. And in that moment, when he heard that call, You are the one, David said, I have sinned before the Lord. And in that moment, church, we are seeing and experiencing something wonderful about the power and commitment, the relentless commitment of God to humankind that we often call gospel, working itself out in David's life. Now, David is not got off scot-free here. There's more giving and taking that takes place. You remember what I said earlier, David has had all kinds of things given to him, and, and Nathan reminds him of that. You've been given uh, your master's house. You've been given your master's uh, wives. You've been given a land. You've been given a kingdom. You've been given, 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 and you went off and decided to take. And guess what, David? Things are going to be taken from you as well. It's going to screw up your family. Your wives are going to be humiliated publicly. What you did was secret, but what's going to happen to you is going to be public. In fact, it's a pretty sordid story that falls out of David's life. The one who humiliates him is none other than his son, Absalom. It's a mess. He's created a royal mess of his life and his usurpation of power, his careless disregard of the sanctity of another human being. Oh, it's a mess. But in the middle of all this, the big word that David hears is, you will not die because you deserve to do so. 
you will not die. God withstays and forgives David and holds fast to his commitment, his covenant to be faithful to David, even though David has done these evil deeds. He's raped a woman. He has murdered her husband. He has acted in heinous ways. And yet, and yet, by that moment of confession, God acts faithfully to David. And herein lies the gospel. And that is for us to hear too today. Because in our hearing, as we reflect on this story, as we reflect about this scripture, as we've spent this time as the people of God in worship, acknowledging God, the God who forgives, the God who relinquishes, takes our sin and washes us free and, and makes us clean. In the context of our story this morning, we too need to hear this story because this story is not just about David and Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan. It's not about the Weinsteins and the Epsteins and the Cosbys and the Kellys. It's about you and about me. Because we are the ones who get caught up in our own sin and brokenness and the ways in which we harshly treat and disregard the others in our lives. The way in which we utilize the power that's been given to us as males, as Americans, as fill in the blank, we find ourselves running roughshod over other people and all the ways in which we do that. As Walter Scott would say it in one of his poems, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. The fact that we abuse one another and distance ourselves from one another and hurt one another is not really a very surprising thing at all. It's, it's the way of the world. We do it all the time, sadly. But the good news is, the good news is that God shows up again and again and he is still present to us. He is faithful to us. He will not let go of his people. And because of Jesus Christ, he confronts our sin and forgives us our sin and draws us back again and again into relationship with him. If we are but willing to confess, O Lord, against you have I sinned. I've been thinking a lot about that old folk song as I think about David and my anger with David these past weeks as I've lived with this text. I've been thinking about the old folk song that goes something like this. It's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Oh, it's me, 
It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of. It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my father nor my mother, but it's me, oh Lord. It's not my father nor my mother, but it's me, oh Lord, standing. It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We could sing about the stranger or the neighbor. We could talk about the preacher and the deacon. The song goes on verse after verse. But what I want to say to you this morning with all of my heart is that it is right for us, I think, to be angry with David and all of the ways in which we see David repeat himself through history in the daily pages of our newspapers and on the TV screens and the internet that we watch. And it is good for us to honor the wiliness and cleverness of Bathsheba. And it is good for us to raise up Uriahs in our midst. But the word for us today as the people of God is that it's us that needs to repent and confess for us to find the hope and the promise of a new life for ourselves and for the witness of the church to this world. It begins with us. It begins with us confessing our sins. Bob Deffenbaugh would say that from a spiritual point of view, David was never better than when he lived in adversity and weakness. And conversely, David never did worse than when he lived in um, prosperity and power. In church, we are a prosperous people, and we are people who wield power. Will we hear the words, this ancient story of David, and renew our commitment to be people who live confessional, repentant lives before a God who is trustworthy and faithful to forgive us constantly and steadily. Would you bow for prayer? As you confronted the powerful and beloved King of Israel, O God, you confront us today. You have come in amongst amongst us in our times of gathered praise, of prayer, of communion. You have been present to us, reminding us of your ways, of your love. And we have been reminded of our failures, our hard-heartedness, and our sin. And so today, O Lord, we pray with David, who would pray in Psalm 51, have mercy on us. Blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity. Cleanse us from our sins. Create in us a clean heart, O God. Put a new and right spirit within us. Do not cast us away. Do not take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. For from you and you alone can we find health 
and hope and wholeness for our souls. Amen.